Well, our passage this morning is in the book of Acts, chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 12. So if you'll join me there, Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. And the title of this morning's message is The Striving Missionaries. So look there with me, beginning in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, we're talking about uh, Saul and Barnabas here. In verse 5, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. That's John Mark. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them and seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease and make it crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord was upon you, is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would uh, lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, as we continue in the book of Acts, we continue tracking this beautiful history, this linear history of examples given to us here in Acts uh, concerning the health and the beauty and the majesty of the church as it's really now in space and time becoming uh, uh, forming before us in the new covenant. So it's a beautiful, glorious picture that we're walking through here. And time and time again in Acts, what we want to be reminded of is when we come to these texts is that Acts is an ongoing universal principle after principle that teaches us what the church is to be like, who we are and what we're to do. So what we find out of Acts is, is principles by way of example for what the church is to be. They're foundational principles for the church. And if you remember on last week, a founding principle for us, a pillar for what it is to be a church, is that we are to be led, continually led, by the Spirit. And how do we uh, approach that on our end, from our responsibility? Well, we're saturating ourselves in the Word of God. We're praying, we're praising, we're serving, we're sharing, and we're seeking to recognize and obey the Spirit's leading in our lives. Now, here's the real good news when we think about, wow, how do we put all that together? And how do I, how do I flush that out in my daily life? Well, we're all in that together. We're in that same boat. And sometimes it's pretty brutal. Uh, life can get going at a pretty rapid pace. But here's, here's what we hold on to. Here's the anchor. Jesus Christ will build His church. Amen? He will build His church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Christ will build His church. So what are we to do? We're to strive to be what we should be. And what do I mean by that? Strive to seek the principles for what it means to be a healthy church. And we again, in Acts, it's beautiful because we get to see them by way of example. They're founded here. Try to be what we should be. And the book of Acts is one long uh, uh, principle as a principle of vibrant expressions of what the church family should be. So strive to be what we should be. Right where you are, right now. The fellowship, the ministering, the boldness in trusting Christ. Do so while you're awaiting. Waiting on the Holy Spirit's leading. And here's the reality. Unless the Holy Spirit leads, nothing's going to happen, right? So we're striving. We're seeking as we fellowship, as we minister to one another, as, as we're going throughout our daily lives together, as we're, as we're breaking bread together, as we're loving and encouraging and, and, and discipling. We're waiting. And we're praying. We're waiting actively. We're praying and pursuing the Spirit's lead in our lives individually and corporately as that always fits together. How we might love and serve the Lord in the way He intends. So we wait. We wait because we realize that our own ideals, programs, and innovations really come to nothing. Now they make us feel busy, but they come to nothing spiritually. The Spirit of God must lead. And so on last week, we noted the importance of spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership within the church. And we saw the commissioning of the first missionaries there out of this Gentile church at Antioch. Gentile church being Antioch in Syria. Okay, so we have the two Antiochs, a Jewish Antioch there, and now here, a Gentile Antioch outside of Judea there in Syria. So the first missionary journey, or missionaries commissioned from the Gentile Antioch. And we saw that on last week, the commissioning of Saul and Barnabas. And they were, by the way, the best and brightest of the lot, right? And the church corporately together happily sent them away, joyfully sent them away. They didn't hold them selfishly. So as we teach and pray, know this, the Spirit will do what He has designed to do in His own time. My, how impatient we can get. Don't be frustrated. Be encouraged. The Spirit will do what He intends to do on His own time. What we are marked for when we stand before our Lord is our faithfulness. It's our faithfulness. So our mumbling, our our mumbling, our, our complaining, our muttering under our breath, that's what we're accountable for. Or our dogged determination to lay hold of Him in prayer and love one another and serve one another and commit ourselves to one another, commit ourselves to the cost of the gospel and wait upon the Spirit. That's what we'll be judged for. So again, be faithful right where you are. Faithful doing what you know God has given to you to do at this point. Be faithful in this and wait upon the Lord. Do what you know to do. Do what you know is right to do now. And be engaged in waiting on the Spirit to create ministry in your life, an additional ministry to what He's already calling you to do right now. And if you say, well, right now, it seems like a small thing, brother. Right now, I don't see a lot of work, a lot of opportunities that the ministry is creating, uh, the Holy Spirit is creating in my life. Hold faithfully and be diligent in what He has given you. And be thankful. 
and wait upon Him to create more ministry and call you into it. Now remember, the key here is that the whole church is operating under <clears throat> the control of the Spirit. That's what I want you to hold here at this Gentile church there in Antioch as they're sending out, commissioning their first missionaries. And it's a corporate picture. And the whole church pictured for us by example here in principle, key principle one, the whole church is operating under the control of the Spirit. So what do we do with principles we see and find given by way of example in Scripture? What do we do? We take them and we apply them to our lives. Because they're universal principles. They're, they're always universal. They're lasting universal principles that fit for any church anywhere on the planet. So what do we do? We take the principles out of Acts and we lay them before the Holy Spirit and beg the Holy Spirit to apply them to our church family. Whole church operating under the control of the Spirit. And that brings me to our first uh, heading here, our first point in, in verse 4. I want you to see there the strategic launch. Look there with me in verse 4. <clears throat> now being sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. Now we know that the church commissioned them, right? That means the church was under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? Everybody's on board. But the Holy Spirit called them out. They're commissioned by the Holy Spirit. And they went down to Seleucia, and there they sailed to Cyprus. Now note here, the Holy Spirit leads and equips in a very prudent and practical manner. That's a wonderful thing to hold on to. Now, are we, are we immersed in this in our experience? Yes. But it doesn't have to be led by experience. A wonderful thing that we can hold on to is the Holy Spirit is not haphazard in His work among His church. And you see something very practical here. They're going to Cyprus. You know who's from Cyprus? You do. Who is from Cyprus? Our old friend Barnabas, right? Barnabas from Cyprus. So this is practical for him to go back. They probably have contacts there. He certainly has a burden for the people. That's something that the Spirit does also. When the Spirit burdens you for a people or a, or a people of a certain area, usually there's a contact. They may not necessarily be there, but the Spirit has burdened a person for a certain area. And there's reasons for that that can be very pragmatic as it unrolls. And here he's from the region. He's from Cyprus. He's from the island. And he has a burden for his people. Now, they sail from Seleucia, uh, Seleucia, and that's a port city. That's a port city there in Syria. And it's about 12 miles, give or take, uh, from Antioch. So they're sailing there, and, they, and they, they, they leave from Seleucia, and they're going to sail to Cyprus. And then the Scripture tells us here that John Mark goes with them also. So point that. And he goes there as a helper. Now, we'll find more out about John Mark as we go along, and there's a little bit of, there's some bumpy roads ahead, and we'll get to that. But here, know that he's gone along as a helper. And this is the first missionary endeavor from the Gentile church. And by the way, if you're sitting here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, as a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, you are fruit from this missionary journey. Do you ever think about that? You're sitting here, right here, and little out of the middle of nowhere, Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Fruit of the Spirit of God's work through His church that He will build from this missionary journey. How do you like them apples? That's not bad, is it? That is a very prudent 
very practical sending of missionaries, churches under the leadership and direction and operation and control of the Spirit. That's a pretty big outreach, isn't it? Well, that's really what we're talking about here. As an outreach and an effective outreach. Effective ministry. Effective ministry is a driving theme of this little section here and really the book of Acts. But certainly here we, we're looking at principles that are, are, are fruitful um, and lasting for all churches everywhere. And the, the pillar here is effective ministry. What does that look like? What are the principles involved? Well, that's what we're dealing with here. Effective ministry is the driving theme of this section. Now, who's involved in effective ministry? Who's it pertain to? Well, certainly the leadership, right? Certainly the elders of, of the church at Antioch and certainly the elders of any church. And certainly missionaries, those who will be called out from these churches, certainly it applies to them. But who else? Everybody. Every single Christian is deeply, intimately, personally, holistically involved in what it means to be a part of effective ministry. This means, uh, can I just give us a vernacular? This means all y'all. <laughs> Who's concerned about it? Every Christian. So we should be practical in recognizing and acting upon the Spirit's providential provision. The Spirit will providentially provide exactly what we need when we need it. Every time, all day long. Our role is to recognize it. We recognize it by study and prayer. Study and prayer. Fellowship. Faithfulness. Loving and developing our, com- our, our commitment to one another through study and prayer and hearing, waiting and hearing uh, the Spirit of God. Now, so our capacity... To recognize and act really does just come through that, through prayer. Recognizing God must do something <coughs> in us and move us or nothing will happen. Nothing of, uh, of spiritual value and worth will happen. We can get busy. Now, again, that's true. We've talked about that and that's the danger. We can get busy and Americans are particularly good at getting busy. We know how to get busy. We're good planners we're very diligent, and we know how to do stuff. So we're good at getting busy. But that's the great danger because just being busy is not effective ministry. It makes you feel good sometimes, but that that's just really pertains to you. That's your emotional makeup. You're making yourself feel good. And it has no spiritual uh, 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 foundation in it. And, and you just dry up. You're just going to wind yourself up, you're going to stay busy, and you're just going to burn out. You're not going to be sanctifying yourself, and you're not going to be a means of sanctifying others. You know what will fall off in that? You'll get busy, but you know what will fall off? You won't have time. That's the funniest thing. You won't have time to come meet with your brothers and study God's Word. You won't have time. You'll be busy doing something else. You know what will fall off? Your prayer life. You won't have time. You won't have time to engage God in your prayer life, which is central to you hearing the Spirit of God working in your life, which is always intimately connected to the life of the church family. Again, it's practical and prudent. Your life, the Spirit of God is not going to work in your life in some unique way that is disconnected from your church family. It's always going to be working together. You're the one that disconnects yourself because you get busy. And you just tag Christian language onto it. 
and convince yourself that that's good and healthy because the rest of everybody's just sitting around. I'm just going to get out and do it. And you'll drive yourself away from a real intimate prayer life. You will. Mark it down. And you'll never find time to come here and meet and study because you'll be too busy doing something else. Or then it's, well, I've been so busy doing other things, I've got to squeeze my family time in. So you're not here. It's praying and studying. Got other stuff to do. Be careful. Be very careful. The Spirit is practical and was always working through prayer and the study of God's Word. There's always His providential provision. And it comes through a certain context and it comes consistently to us. And we see that happening here as the missionaries are now making their way to Cyprus. So know this. God must open the door or nothing will happen. God has opened this door and it's been a very practical opening of their first missionary, missionary door there to Cyprus. It's very practical and they're going there praying that they would know uh, uh, the Spirit's will and have effective ministry there. So how do we, how do we follow up in, in way of application as we're thinking along these terms of the strategic launch and the working of the Spirit in our life and how we can hold on to the fact that it's going to be practical. It's going to be pragmatic. It's going to be prudent. And how do we lay hold of it? Well, simply this. Pray for effective ministry. Who's engaged? Who's concerned about effective ministry? All of us. Everybody, right? Then you pray for effective ministry in your life, for uh, the Spirit of God to give you capacity to, to recognize it and then follow up in obedience to it. And you pray for how that'll fit within the dynamics of this church family, which God has called you to now. They'll always work together. So you pray for yourself. What way? Very simply. Pray that God will give you the understanding of the of effective ministry for you. Where He wants to engage you in effective ministry that brings Him honor and glory. Where's the Spirit of God leading you? And then, also, how's that working within the dynamics of the church family? So here... We see the spiritual, the spiritual sending of these men, men possessing a divine call, right? So these men were recognized by the church. The church recognized that the Holy Spirit had called them or called them out while the Spirit of God said to the, to the church. Now, again, most likely this is through a, a prophet. So a prophet is speaking to the church. But the church is uh, uh, all in unison, in agreement here. So they're hearing from, from God. And then they hear that the Spirit of God says, you know, call out for me. Saul and Barnabas. And what do they do? They all together, corporately, in agreement, lay hands on them and send them out. So what we see here is that internal call working in Paul and, uh, or Saul and Barnabas' lives. So they recognize the call and they're prepared to go out. And they hear from uh, uh, the, most likely a prophet there saying that the Spirit of God has called out these two men now, they're not balking the call. They're all in. And also the church is all in. So what I want you to see here is something that's very consistent and will always be true within a church family as there are those who are being called out to whatever ministry to go forth and have effective ministry. There's an internal call and an external call. So what do I mean there? I mean this. The Spirit works on both ends. So... If you believe that the Spirit of God is calling you to a particular ministry, guess what else the Spirit of God is doing? He's confirming your inward call 
within the rest of the church family dynamic. Do you see that? The rest of the church will recognize it as well. So what I'm saying is, a person is never going to have an inward call and then the church family not be in agreement there. The church family says, no, we have some concerns here about this particular call that you feel. We believe you. We, 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 we're not doubting you. But we're, we have some concerns. Well, then always know this. In those situations, the Spirit of God is never working in contradiction to Himself. If He's calling out a person for a particular ministry, He's also edifying that call with the rest of the brethren. Do you understand? So it's always working that way. So the church, the corporate identity of the church is always a check on that internal call. We're all wanting that to be right and good and, and healthy. But if there's doubt, if there's concern, if the church family is not seeing it or recognize it in the fullest sense that the individual might, then that's where we back up and continue to pray. Because the Spirit will settle that, uh, uh, that picture working on both ends where there's an understanding. So both happened for, for uh, Saul and Barnabas. They uh, understood the inward call and followed. And the church understood that the Spirit of God was setting them apart for this ministry also. So that's how the Spirit works. The Spirit works on both ends. Now know this and hold on to this because this can get sticky and this can get uncomfortable and this can get touchy. But the church has to be faithful here. Look, if someone feels called to a ministry and the church is just not seeing it or maybe just not seeing it right now, then that's a sanctified hitting of the brakes. So I'm telling you, I know. It's too hard. It's too hard to feel that you're called into the ministry unless there's certainty that the Holy Spirit is calling you. And the Holy Spirit will not call anyone from a church family into a certain ministry unless the church corporately identifies with that. That's how the Spirit works. And this is a wonderful check and balance because it's too hard unless you know. So um, it reminds me of uh, John MacArthur, who was uh, really the preacher of our generation in our time. I remember um, when he was telling a story about himself when he was going forth to his ordination board to be ordained as a a minister. And and, uh, the way he tells it, it was a pretty rigorous journey. Uh, It was a pretty tough ordination board. And uh, one particular pastor, he he mentioned one particular pastor stood at a certain time and uh, just said, you know... um, uh, Brother MacArthur, if, if, uh, what would you do if we do not ordain you? And MacArthur said his response was simply this. Well, with if all due respect, if you'll allow me to say, um, nothing in my life would change at all if you don't ordain me. Because I believe that the Spirit of God has called me into ministry. So you may not ordain me, but nothing changes about my calling. And of course, the pastor said, well, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. And of course, we know that uh, they ordained him. But that's how it works. It's too hard otherwise. You must know that it's the Spirit of God. And that will be confirmed in the larger corporate setting. So seek to know what God is calling you to do in terms of service. Sam Waldron put it this way, saying that this is what really discernment this is a definition of discernment that all Christians are called to. All Christians are, are obligated to 
to listen and seek to know and listen to what God is calling them to do in terms of service. And all Christians are obligated to listen to what the Spirit says uh, to them and what the Spirit says about them to others. That's a pretty good way of thinking about discernment. So that's, we're, we're seeking to listen to God in terms of what He's calling us to in service. Seek to listen to what God is saying to you about you and seek to listen to God about what God is saying to others about you. Because the Spirit's going to work on both ends. And if the two aren't lining up, then that's where we back up. And we punt at the moment, and we continue to pray. So the Spirit's always working on both ends, and that's what we see uh, here by way of example in terms of these two men going out and this strategic launch. Well, that brings us to the Gospel proclamation there in verse 5. And it says, when they had reached Salamis, um, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also, again, it says they had uh, John with them, and that's John Mark, and he had them there as a helper. Now, um, now this is kind of, they, they've reached already to the island of Cyprus now, and so they've reached the, in, the internal workings of the island. And their strategy here is, again, very practical, very prudent. So what they do is they go to the synagogues. There. The, the island was full. There's many Jews there, so there's a number of synagogues. And in this sense, they're, they're coming as accepted teachers, so they already have access to the synagogue, right? These men are already established uh, 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 Jewish teachers, so they would have access. They would have right to come and teach. And again, it's following the pattern that Jesus gave by way of prophecy and, and, and order of the gospel spreading to Jews first, and then the Gentiles. So it also matches up with Jesus' prophecy concerning how the gospel would go forth. How uh, God had um, in eternity past determined that the gospel in space and time would move, first, move, move forth. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So we're still in pattern there, but then there's this wonderful, wonderful dynamic of the synagogues there. Now, the Gentiles have access, limited access to the synagogue. So they may want to come and, and, and they, they could be viewed as proselytes coming in and they want to go in and learn about the one true God. So they have access to these synagogues. So when uh, Saul and Barnabas come and they begin to preach, they're preaching primarily to a Jewish audience, but there's an, there's an opportunity there to engage Gentiles. And there's an opportunity there to make contacts with Gentiles. And there's an opportunity there, if you will, to allow the synagogue to be a, a wonderful built-in bridge to the Gentile community concerning the gospel. So they're preaching primarily to the Jews. There's a, there's a, there's a Gentile element there within the synagogue setting. And then also an opportunity to extend from there into the Gentile community. So they're getting access there. That's wonderful. Right in the synagogues, built in, and they have the right to come in right away. Being Jewish teachers, they have already access. So it's a beautiful place to start, very practical place for them to start. So here they go. And what are they doing there? Well, here it is. They're proclaiming the gospel. And note this, proclaiming the gospel is the main work of missionaries. Amen? Now you say, well, that's, that's a no-brainer. You're right, it is a no-brainer. But my, 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 if we were to examine the missionary field's of our day. In some places, it seems they're doing everything but proclaiming the gospel. Now, we right now are, are in the turmoil of social ills. And it is, it is uh, front page everywhere we turn. And it's not that the church 
can't participate in the social matters of our day or speak to the social matters of our day. We can and we should and it's right and it's important. And so I'll take a moment to say this, if you'll indulge me, concerning the social ills uh, uh, ills of our current context, our current setting. We have wonderful, meaningful language concerning equity that has great value to us in terms of ethnic equity and worth and value before God. We know that everyone, no matter their ethnicity, is created in the image of God, and we see that as uh, an ultimate equality among men that comes from God. But tacked on to such wonderful language can be an ideology that we must oppose. For it tears at the core of our Christian belief. It tears at the fabric of God's intention and design for mankind. It's sinful and heinous, and we must oppose it at every turn. But that's not our main purpose. That's not our main mission. That's not our main concern. We are here till we draw our last breath on this planet to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in every setting and every opportunity that God might give us. So help us, God. That's our calling. That's our identity. That's who we are. And that's the main purpose of missionary work is to proclaim the gospel. And that's what we find them doing. And that's what we're to do. We can get sidetracked in so many ways. It's easy to do. And again, we can get so busy in ministry. You wouldn't think about that. It just seems too obvious. But missionaries set apart by God for a unique, to, to take the gospel, and often cases, into unreached areas. And they so quickly become sidetracked with social endeavors and social ministries and social constructs and lose sight of the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel is the foundational ministry of missionaries. And in one sense, we're all missionaries, right? Are we talking about those who will be called out and equipped and set apart from a church and then sent by a church? Yes. Are we looking at a global picture here? Yes. Are we praying for that to be our heartbeat? Yes. And to see the Spirit of God engage us in that reality? Yes. But then at a more foundational level, we're all missionaries. We're all set apart by Christ to carry the gospel. And that's your main purpose. Where you work, what you do, where you live, that's your main purpose. That's why you're here. That's why He left you this side of glory. There's going to be no need to carry the gospel in glory, is there? There's no need there. This is our purpose. This is why we're here, to proclaim the gospel. So keep that in sight. Keep careful focus on this true foundational uh, pillar of of effective Christian ministry and global Christian missions. We're to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the word of God. Proclaiming the word of God is to be central in who we are and our commissioning. It's the great commission, is it not? We're to make disciples. We're to baptize disciples. We're to plant churches. We're to teach disciples all uh, that Christ commands us. And how does this start? How does that great commission start? How do we start doing all that stuff? Where does that start? By proclaiming the gospel. What comes first there? Proclaiming the gospel. 
So the plain communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what we're talking about. The telling of the reality of our nature as falling creatures before a holy God. The telling that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The telling of the meaning and purpose of the incarnate Christ who before the foundation of the world according to the will of the Father, the Son and perfect submission and happy glory union with the Father there determined to take on flesh, wrap Himself in flesh and condescend to fallen man with the purpose of ascending the cross that there He might die an atoning death on behalf of sinners, that there He might die as our substitute, that there He might die bearing our sin debt in His body and imputing His righteousness into our account, that He earned under the law, living perfectly under the law of the Father, that there He might identify with us in the most unique way, that He, Holy God, Second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ, condescended to us, wrapped Himself in flesh, identified with us, and ascended the cross on our behalf, paying a sin that, that we could not pay. There, He became our sacrifice and our substitute, that He made atonement, bearing our sin dead away in His body and imputing His righteousness into our account. And there, according to the atoning work of Jesus Christ, for all those who repent and believe on Him, we there stand justified before a holy God. That's what we proclaim to a fallen world. That's what we say to them. That's the message we carry. The plain, simple, straightforward communicating of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And know this, don't stop there. The plain, simple communication of the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what am I talking about? We tell them that true faith, true repentance, which comes by a gift of faith granted to us by God. And when God grants that gift of faith, we do repent, right, Jesse? Repent and we believe on Christ. And all who repent and believe on Christ will be saved. When one is saved, this is what we do in saying in granting and communicating the full gospel. When there is saving faith, that faith is transforming. Amen. It's transforming. There is no longer the same practice of sin. There is a lordship salvation. The old life is put away. There is a new man. There is a walking in righteousness and a struggle and a fight and a battle against sin. There is a hatred of sin. Do we wrestle with it? Do we fall to it? Yes, but we never love it. We never embrace it. The old practice of sin is put away. There is a walking in righteousness and a hatred of sin and a stinking dogfight all the way to the end of glory. That's the gospel. There's no coddling of sin. There's no uh, uh, embracing of sin. There's no justifying of sin for a true believer. There's no holding the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in this world consistently in a worldly manner. It's a lie from the pit of hell and we communicate the true gospel. When you have saving faith, that saving faith is a transforming faith. And you walk in righteousness to the glory of your God who saved you. We communicate the truth of the gospel and we do so for a lifestyle. It's who we are. It's not something that we try to awkwardly shove in there as an, as an afterthought, it's just what we do when we wake up until we go to bed. It's who we are. It's what we're thinking about. It's what we're praying about. It's what we're begging for opportunities to do each day. It's just who we are. Every day. All day long. And when we miss them, and when we whiff on them, 
And when, we, and when we and we fall to the flesh and when we get nervous and when we back down and when, when we walk in fear, then we go home and we beg God to cleanse us and beg God to change us so we get up the next day if He gives us breath and fix it. We're carrying the gospel. We don't do other stuff. We don't preoccupy ourselves with other things. That's not our calling. But know this. As we carry the gospel, there will be a satanic assault on that gospel. And that's what I want to bring you to next in verses 6 and 7. Look there with me. When they had gone through the whole island, so they crisscrossed it really. It's talking about they're really going more, more east and west when they take their journey. <clears throat> as far as uh, Paphos, <clears throat> they found a magician there, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. And he says he's with the proconsul uh, Sergius Paulus. And this man was intelligent. And this man had summoned, uh, had summoned Barnabas and Saul. And he wanted to hear the word of God. And so let me just bring you on down to 8, and we'll tie that 8 in really with, uh, with uh, this satanic assault and then our following point. But it says here, Ilamus, uh, again, that's talking about Bar-Jesus. That's another name he's given. He says that he was a magician. And he was opposing them, opposing Saul and Barnabas, and he was seeking to turn Sergius Paulus away from the faith. So this is, what, this is what they come up against. Now, note this right up front. I don't know how to put it in any, any plainer words. Look, this is a great open door right here, isn't it? And I'm sure uh, Saul and Barnabas are praising God and praying for how they might follow through <coughs> Excuse me, uh, under the, the, the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit as they walk through this open door of ministry. Uh, 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 um, Sergius Paulus is just... Has just requested them. Now, this guy's a governor of the island. So he's a proconsul. That's his title. But he's basically, for us, we can see it as a governor. And he's a governor of this island. This island was kind of a, this is not a, a tumultuous island or a region that belongs to Rome. This is kind of a calm, peaceful region. So it falls under the reign uh, uh, of, of Rome, but it, it, but it goes to the Senate. So the Senate sort of oversees where there's not turmoil going on. The Senate will oversee. Uh, the reign there, and they'll oversee it by appointing uh, a governor, basically. That's a proconsul. Now, other areas under Roman control where it's a little more tumultuous, then Caesar just runs that himself. Because if Caesar needs to do what? Send the troops? He sends the troops. But we have the council set out there, and the Senate, and, and so they work as a council, and they kind of manage the less tumultuous areas. So that's what we're looking at here in Cyprus. And so the governor reigns there. So he has full authority. Now he's asking for them. He's inviting them in. He wants to hear what they have to say. So know this. When great open doors for the gospel come, they come with opposition. Just settle it in your hearts. If you come upon a great open door for the gospel, just expect opposition. You're not just going to waltz through there and not be assaulted. We're in a dog fight. It's going to cost you. If you're going to carry the gospel with any amount of faith, it's going to cost you. There's a price to pay. This is a battle. Until we're in glory, you're in a battle. You have to see it that way. Or you're just going to back down. You're going to find, especially here in America, because we have lots of things to do. You're just going to find another amusement park and somehow justify it. You won't go. You won't do it. It's too cushy here. You won't do it. It's a fight. You have to see it as a fight. 
You have to train your children to understand if God was to save them, they're going to have to see it as a fight. It's the way it is. And so here we find Bar-Jesus, which uh, that Bar means son of, which it translates, so son of a savior, really is what it translates here. And what, what an irony. He's really son of the devil. But here's son of the savior. He's a black magician. He's into black magic. He's a medium. He's a demonic sorcerer, if you will. He's a false prophet. He's a Hellenistic Jew there, uh, probably making a pretty good salary because he's kind of the, the advisor. So this is the spiritual advisor there for the governor. And know this, that, that this, you know, the, the first century Roman world was steeped, saturated, soaked in this kind of dark magic, this kind of uh, uh, occultic, d- demonic occultism. The place was just saturated in it. So just full of it. I mean, in this area here in Cyprus, the, the, um, the goddess Venus was worshipped, uh, you know, pro- primarily there. And there was this understanding that she, was, she uh, uh, rose up from the foam, from the foam that would roll up on the shore, that she was birthed from the foam there. And there's all kind of occultic activities and wicked, demonic uh, um, seances that would go on there involving all kinds of inappropriate activity in worship of the goddess Venus there on, on Cyprus. So they were steeped in this stuff. And here you've got a very intelligent man. Scripture tells us this guy's an intelligent man. So he just pauses a sharp guy. But he's, he's still false prey to this same stuff. So he's into this occult business. He's into this dark magic. And Bar-Jesus is his guy. So that's, that's his medium. That's his advisor. Sounds kind of scary, right? Don't think it's not true today. Don't think we don't have very intelligent men and women that have occultic, dark magic sorcerers and advisors, as their advisors. Sad but true. Especially in our age, and we see now in this age, the younger generation is coming up in a a culture that's moved away from the the biblical truths of the gospel. And what do we hear people say all the time in our context? Well, I'm not religious, but I'm what? I'm spiritual. And so they'll sit in these white-collar offices. They'll sit in these... Uh, cushy places with these cushy jobs that you know you have to be a smart uh, man or woman to, to hold these jobs and they'll sit in there and they'll have all these practices brought in to try to make them more efficient and what's it always about something identifying with their inner self something of spiritual nature how they have their time to go away and try to reinvigorate themselves with with uh, uh, getting a hold of their inner being through some way of meditation or or, or or some medium. So nothing new under the sun there, but this is what's going on with this very intelligent man. He's being seduced by this false prophet who is a son of the devil. And he's calling for the missionaries who are going to carry the gospel. So you think Bar-Jesus is good with it? No, he's not. What do you think this, if, this guy, if, if uh, the governor gets a hold of the gospel, whose who's pocketbook is it going to hurt? Bar-Jesus, right? That's going to cut into his pay. So he feels a threat, right? And so look what he does here in verse 8. And again, Elymas, I'm not sure. We don't, I, don't really, I couldn't find a translation of the name. It, it's, a, it's a Greek name. But um, so uh, son, of Sa- son of the Savior, which is really son of Satan, is also called Elymas here. And I don't really know uh, an active, meaningful translation there. I could never find anything on that. Um, but he was opposing them. Why? Now, 
here's the key. He's opposing them himself, but he's also opposing them concerning the gospel going forth to the pro-council there. You see that in verse 8? He's trying to keep the pro-council away from the faith. And so he's seeking to turn the pro-council away from the faith. And turn there really means to twist. To twist him away from the faith. And so in verse 10 there, when Paul begins to address him, that's exactly the same language Paul uses. He says, you're trying to twist the governor away from the faith, meaning that you're trying to twist the gospel message. So he's still, he's still trying to speak some spiritual language here, some nice flowery spiritual language, but he's taking gospel true doctrine and he's twisting it. Isn't that how it always works? It's never all lies. It's always some partial truth, but there's a twisting there. That's exactly what he's doing. He's taking sound doctrine coming from Paul and Barnabas and he's twisting it to try to twist Sergius Paulus away from the gospel. That's how it always works. So that's what this son of Satan is doing. And so here's this great open door. And here's this thing they're surely bathing in prayer. And here's the reality. As they bathe this in prayer, and as we're going to see the missionaries meet this guy head on, we're going to see a spiritual battle. We're going to see a battle here between light and darkness. And here's what we have to hold, this reality, because you'll go out and you'll be in the same context. And here's what you have to hold. The gospel delivers people from demonic sorcery. Period. The gospel delivers from this stuff. They were people steeped in this stuff, born and bred in this stuff. It owned them. They were saturated in it from from youth on up. This is the highest level of governmental authority there on the island. And this guy's steeped in black magic. He's got his own personal medium. The gospel delivers from this stuff. That's the glorious hope. That's the great power. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that brings us to the apostolic sledgehammer. And I want you to see that in 8 through 11 there. So he's trying to twist the true doctrine and he's trying to twist the pro-council away from the faith. And Saul engages him here. And it says in verse 9, Saul, who was also known as Paul. And there we get it for the first time. I've been mixing it up for weeks, so y'all heard it for plenty, for, uh, uh, you know, many times over and over because I keep calling him Paul when he's supposed to be calling him Saul. But now it's official. Here the first time we hear him as Paul and it kind of marks him off. He's also known as Paul. In other words, he's always had that name. That's his Greek name. He's a Hellenistic Jew. So I always carry a name. So what does it mean? Anybody know what Paul means? It's little. It means little. So he's a little guy. Probably, probably spoke to his stature. But uh, not his heart. Not his fervency. Not his passion for Christ. Not his intellect. Or probably his stature. So he's little. So that's his Greek name. He's also, that's, that's, that's not, he's not given a name. It's just now they start calling him Paul. So he goes by his Greek name. Is what it's saying. And why does he go by his Greek name? Because he's, begun, he's going to carry, he's kind of marked right here's the marking line. Now he's going to go forth as the point man that's going to carry the gospel into the Greek world, right? So what does he say there in 2 Timothy uh, uh, 3.13? He says, I endeavor, or, or, excuse me, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, I gave, I gave the wrong text there. Um, but, uh, uh, He's saying this concerning, concerning um, uh, this, this demon, this, this uh, false teacher. He's saying this concerning the twisting of doctrine. In 2 Timothy 3.13 he says, Evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So that's exactly what Bar-Jesus is doing. He's deceived and he goes on deceiving. And he continues to deceive himself. And so it's just this ongoing deepening. So he's settled, he's set, he's fixed. This is a, this guy is just, 
He's, he's, he's got his heels dug in. And Paul's marked off here as this point man. He's called Paul right here. And then it says that he fixed his gaze on Bar-Jesus and he said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease making crooked straight ways, the straight ways of the Lord? Well, that was subtle, wasn't it? So, at this opposition, the Spirit of God, the mighty hand of the Spirit of God lays hold of Paul and gives him boldness to stand this son of Satan down. And he gives the gospel success here. And he does so how? By exposing the enemy. You see how that happens? You see what happened there? The enemy is exposed. You who are full of all deceit. Well, he's a liar. And of course he's a liar because he's the son of Satan. Satan's the chief of all liars. So he's a liar. He's a fraud. He's a son of the devil. There it is. And he's an enemy of all righteousness. So he's identified. And it's important to be to, to identify when you, these these these. Uh, uh, folks, when you come upon a situation like this. Now, are we to be kind and gentle and loving and winsome and carrying the gospel? Yes, we are. But on certain occasions, there's a time. There comes a time when this is right. And now such a time. Now, why is this? Because he's trying to withhold the gospel from someone else. This guy is settled. He's fixed. He's stubborn. He is, he is purposefully actively opposing the gospel. And so now's the time that Paul has to take this kind of harsh language to him. So there are times that this is appropriate. And we see the rebuke here in verse 11. So he says, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those to lead him by the hand. Now here's a man that's trying to lead others astray. And that's why the strong language comes. He just, he's dug in in opposition to the gospel and he's trying to hinder it, uh, the gospel going forth concerning others. And so there is a time when you can just, when they need to be exposed, when a false prophet needs to be exposed and identified. And there's a time for language like this. Not always, but there is a time. And so here we come upon it. And so now we see the verdict. He's judged now. But I want you to see mercy in this, right? Now, he should have been blinded for the rest of his life, shouldn't he? He deserves that and much more, and so do we. But here's mercy. It's for a time. He's blind for a time. And now this guy that with, with uh, black magic's kind of a, uh, it's, it's a little tongue-in-cheek here almost, black magic mist, you know, to kind of mystify uh, the people that have been holding the spell and take money from them. Now a mist, if you will, falls upon him. So now he's blind, blind for a time. Because there's grace there. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but uh, in some, there's been note of it in some extra biblical material that um, maybe Bar Jesus turned to the Lord. We can't say that definitively. But we certainly see the grace here. We certainly see the mercy here. So he's only blinded for a time. That's a picture of the hope of the gospel. But what are we to be? We're to be patient, we're to be kind, and we're to be gentle. And then note that there, are, that there is space for severity. When someone is wicked in contempt, 
settled rebellion, fixed opposition against the gospel, and against the gospel reaching others, we can bear forth a judgment on them and call them to account and identify them and call them out in a very severe way. So the language is not inappropriate. It's just circumstantial. We need to be wise and uh, uh, um, wise as serpents and harmless as doves in that regard. Our, 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 the general picture for us is to go forth gently and kindly and patiently and winsomely. But just know this is not out of order for Paul here. He's not, he's not out of his source. This is an appropriate time here. And with that, the question might rest with us, where's the fear of God today as we carry the gospel into this culture? I mean, we don't want to go out and be heavy-handed, but we need to be direct. There's no fear of God in our culture. So that footing is not there for us. We have to establish that footing. So we'll be wise to think about that as well. We need to be direct. There's no fear in our culture. It's not that foundation's gone. It used to be laid and it was different for us in terms of carrying the gospel. Now that's not there for you. So you need to be at least at a baseline thinking about being direct. And as we close out here in verse 12, I want you to see the salvific result. And I want you to note something here. Uh, I hope it will help us going through the book of Acts. It could just be a, a, it could slip by. So let me mention that. Miracles do not automatically produce saving faith. So we see a miraculous work here. We see this guy being blinded. The Spirit of God commanding Paul, the apostle, to uh, expose this guy and then curse him, put a verdict on him. And so we see a miraculous blinding, if you will. This is a work of God in judgment. Now again, it's, a, it's, it's momentary. And again, there's a picture of the gospel there. But there's no less a miraculous work here. Now, s- salvation works as a result of what's happened there. Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul, okay, that's Sergius Paulus, the proconsul believed. He believed when he saw what had happened. So he believed when he saw uh, Bar Jesus blinded at the curse of Paul, the apostle. Look at the rest of it. Why did he believe? He believed because he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So now are miracles at play? Uh, and do they have an effect? Certainly we see, we know that, that, that uh, miracles are, 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 are a reality of, of God's overall working and in, in bringing about salvation among man. But they do not automatically bring saving faith with them. So what I want you to see out of this, because we're going to move forward, they're not necessary for saving faith. Miracles are not necessary for saving faith. If they were, we're all in trouble, right? So they're not necessary for saving faith. Here a miracle was on display to show what about God? The power of the gospel. Now, uh, Sergius Paulus witnessed the power of the gospel. He recognized that. He saw the power of the gospel. But what, what came about to bring about the salvation? The Word of God, Scripture, right? The teaching of Scripture, the truth of the Gospel. That's the reality there. He heard the Gospel there in 12, and he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. He was amazed at what uh, 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 Paul and Barnabas brought to him in terms of the proclamation of the Gospel. So the miracle happened, but it didn't produce the saving faith. You with me? We need to know that. That's going to be important for us as we move through Acts. It's important for us in our context now. So what's not needed for effective ministry? Let's think about that as we close out. What's not needed? Miracles are not needed. And also, prophets. 
Now, when the two were commissioned, that was more, most likely a New Testament prophet. But now we see here they're beginning to plant a church on Cyprus. And what do they have? The teaching of the Lord. Now, Paul and Barnabas both are apostles. Paul, an apostle of Christ. Barnabas, not an apostle of Christ, but an apostle in terms of missionary. And both, certainly we know Paul's prophetic. He's, he had the gift of prophecy. Barnabas, quite likely. We know for sure with Paul. But they taught the word of the Lord here. You see that? They didn't prophesy anything. They taught the word of the Lord. And the miracle didn't bring about the salvation. It was a teaching of the word of the Lord. So what we not need for salvation? We don't need miracles. And we don't need prophets. Now you need to hold that as we move forward. We don't need that. What must we have? The word of God. This is we go forth and carry the gospel. We have to have the Word of God. Miracle's not necessary. Here it was used. Certainly showed the power of the Gospel, but didn't bring salvation. What brought salvation? Teaching of the Word. We need the Gospel. We go forth, led by the Spirit, and we carry the Gospel. What's the main mission? What's the main work? What's the main purpose of missionary work? Proclaiming the Gospel. Right? That's what we need. Okay? Let's stop right there. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for your truth. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would take your word, your truth, the principles here given to us by way of example in this beautiful uh, uh, period of time that we look back upon here as the early church is now spreading into the Gentile world and uh, the, the, the grace of your gospel we see now unfolding historically for us by way of example in these uh, texts that lie before us. And we, we thank you for that and we pray that these timeless principles that you will take and you will lay hold uh, and, and take root here in us, in our church family, and that we will see them, and that we uh, seek you and recognize your leading here for us and strive to obey you, and that we recognize the principles that are universal and lasting here for us and, and pray for them and lay hold of them and pursue you and how that you will bear them out uh, among us. And we thank you and praise you for your grace. We praise you for the gospel that you have lavished upon us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.